You're listening to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. This podcast is part of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund's ongoing education program. My name is Alex Cox, and in this episode, we roll back in time a couple of months to WonderCon 2014 in Anaheim, California. This is a recording of a live presentation by our executive director, Charles Brownstein, about the history of the Comics Code Authority. It's a live presentation with a visual element, although Mr. Brownstein does a pretty good job of describing what is on screen, and most of the images in question are readily available in a quick Google search. Uh, They're all cited and, and described in detail, so... If you're curious, you can find them pretty readily if you're not already sure what what comics he's talking about as he goes through the slideshow. Um, This presentation was done in cooperation with our friends at Comic-Con International. They produce two uh, extremely wonderful shows, WonderCon in Anaheim and Comic-Con International in San Diego. As always, we appreciate their support. They're a wonderful organization, and they do a lot to make sure the educational aspect of the CBLDF is in full force at their shows. So let me present Charles Brownstein and the history of the Comics Code Authority. Okay, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to WonderCon. Uh, thank you so much for coming out to the first of the three Comic Book Legal Defense Fund panels that are focusing on the 60th anniversary of the Kefauver hearings and the Comics Code. I am Charles Brownstein. I'm the executive director of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. We are a nonprofit organization that has been protecting the freedom to read comics for almost 30 years. And today we're going to be discussing the history of the Comics Code in Legacy of Fear, the true story of the Comics Code, presented by the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. Pop culture has always been the way it is around us now, sexy, dangerous, and awesome. There's always been the impulse to excite with daring figures going out and doing dangerous things and living out the fantasy lives that we have within us. And here you see some illustrations of what pop culture looked like in the early days of the 20th century at the dawn of the motion picture era at the uh, the, the theater that was coming into the rolling, roaring 20s. You see Hedy Lamarr uh, on a poster, you see a, uh, a jungle adventure, you see the jazz age um, Polly and her pals strip at the very bottom on the right, and the phantom lady. These images wouldn't be out of place today, um, but they, you would think that they'd be out of place in the 20s and 30s because there was moral panic that spread that said that we're going to be sending people down a wrong path because of the media that they're consuming. Uh, they were saying that jazz music was going to impair young people in their ability to be subtle and appreciate the subtler things. They said that motion pictures were going to lead to loose morality and blasphemy. And one of the important cases that set the standard for this is the Mutual Film Corporation versus the Industrial Commission of Ohio. And this is because in 1913, at the dawn of the motion picture era, the state of Ohio wanted to create a board of censors for motion pictures. And they passed a statute that formed that board, and they had the duty to review and approve all films that were to be exhibited in the state. The Ohio board conveniently charged a fee for this service, and even more conveniently for them and their desire to impose this fee, could order the arrest of anybody showing an unapproved film in the state. Now, the Mutual Film Corporation disagreed with this and brought suit that eventually went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And in 1915, in this case, the Supreme Court determined that free speech protections guaranteed by the First Amendment did not apply to motion pictures because they, quote, may be used for evil. (laughs) And so on the basis of this unanimous decision that was on the books until 1952, 
There was the authority for local authorities to actually determine that they could be censorship bodies because motion pictures were not regarded as this protected speech. And so this decision and the outcry from moral watchdog groups led to a self-censoring regulation known as the Motion Picture Production Code of 1930, better known as the Hayes Code. Now that handsome gentleman that you see on the cover of Time magazine is Will H. Hayes. He was a Presbyterian elder who was pushing for the code and ultimately got the code put into effect in 1934 under Joseph Breen, the chief government censor of motion pictures. So we actually had in the United States a government content czar that was rating the movies. And the Hayes Code had several guidelines that prohibited certain kinds of speech or imagery, and so pointed profanity either by title or lip-syncing, which included the words God, Lord, Jesus, or Christ, so blasphemy, or hell, damn, God, any other profane or vulgar expression was to be put down. Any licentious or suggestive nudity, in fact, or silhouette, and any lecherous or licentious notice thereof by other characters in the picture could not get the Hayes Code and be distributed. And when you look at the motion pictures uh, from the pre-code, which I encourage you to do because they're fascinating documents and are awfully entertaining, you'll see that people have always been people and people have always been interested in glamorous people wearing next to nothing doing glamorous things. And a lot of that stuff was the same as the kind of PG-13 entertainment that um, you'll see on the CW. And some of it was, you know, harder stuff as well, but adults have a right to see that material. Under the Hayes Code, that was pushed underground. Uh, there was also any, no a prohibition on depicting the illegal, illegal traffic in drugs, any inference of sexual perversion, any inference of white slavery, relationships between the white and black races, which they called miscegenation. Um, scenes of actual childbirth were not to be shown, no ridicule of the clergy, and so forth. And so it was into this, uh, and, and so here's some illustrations of the Hayes Code before and after uh, from the 1934 movie Tarzan and His Mate. Uh, on the left side, in the first act of the Breen Office of the Hayes Code, you see Maureen O'Sullivan wearing a skimpy bikini costume and um, flirting with this handsome gentleman uh, over in, in the jungle. And on the right, there having some sing-song with a young boy in weird shorts. Um, but, you know, this is the climate that comic books are born into. This here is the actual um, Hayes Code seal that appeared on all of the books. And so this is the culture that comic books were born into, starting with Famous Funnies, the uh, presentation of popular comic strips in the comic book format, and the first original comics publications, which you see some illustrations here. And from the start, comics attracted the ire of would-be censors. And as you might have heard me say before, if you've come to one of these panels, you know, the job of young people is to horrify their elders. And you know, the, the elders have a couple of choices. They can say, well, why are you reading this crudely drawn thing? And the kid can go, because the man's flying, and how cool is that? Or you can go, let me take that away. That's no good for you. And so comics were immediately hugely popular among younger readers and adolescents for their visual punch. Um, but moral crusaders, just like they had successfully done with film, were asserting that comics would corrupt youth. And unique to comics, that comics would hurt their ability to read or appreciate art, or even would make them delinquents. One of the earliest criticisms of comics that really took the popular imagination was written by Sterling North, who was a children's book author that was uh, also writing reviews uh, for various publications, including the Chicago Daily News, where in 1940 he wrote a, uh, public, a, a column called A National Disgrace. He said comics were, quote, badly drawn, badly written, and badly printed, a strain on young eyes and young nervous systems. Their crude blacks and reds spoil the child's natural sense of color. Their hypodermic injection of sex and murder make the child impatient with better, although quieter, stories. And that editorial was the opening salvo and criticism for comics. Now, you look back on this and see that North was himself a writer of prose for young readers, and his books, his children's books, his wholesome books that he was urging parents to have their kids read were selling in the thousands, and comic books were selling in the tens or hundreds of thousands, so you might retroactively do some math about why he might be condemning the sale of comic books. 
Um, but his language um, really graphically captured a, an imagination and gave a language to consider comics as this gutter material. He characterized comics as guilty of the cultural slaughter of the innocents. Within a year of that editorial appearing in the Chicago Daily News, it would be reprinted in fuller part in 40 newspapers, opening up public scrutiny. And in response to that criticism, National, uh, National Comics Publications, which uh, published and would go on to become known as DC Comics, develops an editorial advisory board um, to review those, those materials. And that was one of a variety of strategies that publishers had put out there to deflect criticism. And despite the criticism that was leveled at the field, comics continued to flourish. When the United States entered the Second World War, a new audience of military personnel came to comics, and that would actually represent a quarter of the printed matter going to the, the military exchanges out there. And I want to dwell on this for a little minute. So, so we have Captain America comics by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon, and you see the, the Captain America leaping into Hitler's nest and socking him in the jaw. And this stuff was going over to young men, principally, that were serving in the Second World War. These were barely, barely into adulthood people. You know, these are people 18, 19, 20 years old, not too different from the age group that starts really reading comics seriously now. Um, and, and this is something that would be lost in the condemnation of comics as, you know, strictly appealing to children. The fact that fully a quarter of the material going overseas to these uh, military bases for comics is really significant about the idea that they weren't simply just for kids, even though this is an argument that we can wage now with this knowledge but wasn't really being waged at the time. On the home front, new genres continue to develop. And remember that what's happening in the culture at the time is that you have motion pictures that you can go see, and you have radio drama, and you have vaudeville, but comics really could pack the most imaginative punch of just about any medium. And so true crime comics became an extremely popular form of entertainment at the day. And so in 1942, the publication Crime Does Not Pay debuted. It was developed by Charles Biro and Bob Wood for Lev Gleason Publishing, and it marketed itself as a true crime comic, um, going through the newspaper items and, and saying, well, it's true, so it's, it's fine to put out there. But really, it's focusing on these you know, lurid depictions of the criminals and their misdeeds. And it was wildly popular. And so it, host, it, it, it created this host of imitators uh, some of which you see on there, um, including one of my favorite titles, Gangsters and Gun Moles. Uh, but, you know, this was just a very robust form of entertainment. And as you could see, the newsstand created this wide range of these full-color fever dreams that ranged from the wholesome antics of the funny animals to the sultry exploits of adventurers like the Phantom Lady, uh, jungle comics and superheroes, suspenseful adventurers, sports detectives, Every kind of story was going out through comics, and it is true that comics were wildly popular among young people, but they were sold as a truly mass entertainment. And this mass entertainment with its vivid image-filled stories attracted the disapproval of many, um, many groups that would foment moral panic, but most especially the Catholic Church and PTAs. John Francis Knoll, the bishop of Fort Wayne, Indiana, used his National Organization for Decent Literature and its publication, Our Sunday Visitor, as a pulpit to speak out against immoral reading matters, such as com including comics. Um, every month, they published a, uh, a, a publication called The Acolyte that was for clergy that had a literal black list of publications disapproved for youth, and comic books would regularly appear on there. Their activity inspired other clergy to create uh, pamphlets condemning comics and activity condemning comics on the pulpit, including uh, this excellent cover that you see here uh, for The Case Against Comics, which was published in 1944 by the Catechetical Guild of St. Paul, Minnesota. And it's really emblematic of the condemnation of the medium brought by Catholic groups of the period. You know, look at those children with their drugged eyes looking at comics and imagining explosions and violence while the devil is in the middle there pulling them in. It would make an awesome heavy metal cover today, but at the time it was every suburb nightmare of what your kids were going to be getting into 
uh, both in their corporal life here on earth, but their immortal life thereafter. And at the same time that you saw the condemnation against comics on the clergy level happening, you also saw an early illustration of a tale that is told down to the present day, the copycat crime event that occurs because of media when a tragedy strikes. So here you see a news clipping, comics blamed in death of youth, 12. While the church and PTA groups were increasing their criticisms of the comics, the comics themselves were fingered as the cause of tragedy, such as this 47 clipping from the Lewis and Daily Sun. Headlines like this one stood alongside rising statistics in juvenile crime and a cultural concern about the increase in juvenile delinquency. And the prevalence of crime comics everywhere made comics a target of moral panic. Now let's pull back for a minute and kind of look at what's been happening over the last 10 years. You see gun violence occurring in schools going back to the Columbine massacres, and you see that, what are we looking at? Well, what were the young people consuming around the time that they, they permitted this violent act? Here you see that that story didn't begin with video games, it didn't begin with heavy metal before that. You know, you see that story happening here with comics way back in 1947. And just like lawmakers today, say, well, we need to have study groups and see if we really need to do something to crack down on media. Back in the 1940s, law enforcement decided that they could take an interest in comics, and because of that Supreme Court decision that gave us the ability for the Hayes Code to exist, local law enforcement was, in fact, able to create ordinances to prohibit the sale and display of comics material. And so in 1948, Harry S. Toy, the commissioner of police in Detroit, made his city the first to crack down on comics, and he passed an ordinance banning an initial total of 36 titles. According to David Heyju in the 10 Cent Plague, the city classified a comic as objectionable and therefore unable to be sold if it met any of the four criteria. It depicted characters planning or perpetrating a crime. It had stories involving a youth in a crime. The comic, the quote, entire comic was dealing with crime or criminal deeds, or four, it could portray gruesome or brutal conduct on women, children, or race. And so this was clearly targeting the popular realm of true crime comics that I was showing you, but could be broadly interpreted to include a variety of other popular genres, including the superhero and detective uh, genres as well. And comic bands would follow Detroit's lead in Ann Arbor, Mount Prospect, Illinois, Indianapolis, Indiana, Hillsdale, Michigan. According to Heyju, he says, quote, in the months to follow, more than 50 municipalities, including several of the most populous in the United States, would develop initiatives to curb the sale of comic books. It was into this climate that Dr. Frederick Wortham emerged. He was, I heard somebody booing, that's awesome. Um, and the reason we boo Wortham is one that you might not have actually recognized in 48, because Dr. Wortham is a difficult case. He was a pioneering neurobiologist who worked extensively to fight stigmas associated with mental illness in children. He was the author of important studies concluding that racial segregation was detrimental to children's mental health. He was instrumental in the Brown versus Education desegregation case in 1954. He did work to advocate for the poor and the disenfranchised and for mentally ill individuals to receive fair criminal uh, trials. Unfortunately, and the reason we boo him today, well, one of the reasons, is he had a flair for seeking headlines and in assuming the iconic role of the crusader um, in his crusade against comics. And so he entered the fray with a March symposium called the Psychopathology of Comic Books, where he invited peers in his field to present papers about why comics were going to turn good kids into bad kids, why comics were detrimental for youth. And his symposium was written up in uh, Judith Chris's article, Horror in the Nursery, which appeared in the March 27, 1948 edition of Collier's Magazine. That same week, Time also reported on the symposium in an article called Puddles of Blood. Now, I draw your attention to the photographs here. Now, Dr. Wortham had a clinic called the Lafargue Clinic in Harlem in Manhattan in New York City. He was dealing primarily with underprivileged African-American kids who were in bad socioeconomic, socioeconomic uh, conditions. 
And so his clinic was basically dealing with what we would today call at-risk youth. And he wasn't dealing with a control group. He was saying that these kids that come to me, they call me Dr. Quarter because for a quarter he would listen to anybody's troubles. They come to me, they tell me their troubles, and they all read comic books. It must be the comic book's fault. But I draw your attention to these pictures of these suburban kids that are lily white and well-dressed and clean in these suburban homes, you know, supposedly imitating what they see in the comics. And so this is a piece of the moral panic that was whipped up by the way the media was covering Wortham. Here is Wortham's follow-up article in the Saturday Review of Literature, the comics, very funny. And you can see how he would take materials out of context, such as the infamous Jack Cole illustration of the injury to the eye, um, or they quoted him calling comics uh, luridly the marijuana of the nursery. Um, this led to a popular debate. You know, here are more clippings, this is from February 1949, about what you can do about the scourge of comic books. And so this, the laws in the Midwest that I told you about, uh, the national stage of attention to juvenile delinquency and the understanding that, hey, comics might have something to do with this, led to church and school groups actually gathering comics for public burnings, which you can see in this photograph um, from Connecticut. In towns like Spencer, West Virginia, students organized boycotts of businesses selling comics and used peer pressure to shun individuals reading the material. So this was pretty grim stuff going on where the sales of the crime comics were diminishing and there was a real sense that you know, this material really could be regulated out of existence. And so the, in an attempt to deflect public criticism, the industry in 1948 established the ACMP, the Co uh, Association of Comic Magazine Publishers, who created a publisher's code that was modeled on the Hayes Code. Um, just a few illustrations of what the uh, code, which on the screen is in its entirety, says that uh, sexy wanton comics should not be published. Uh, crime should not be presented in such a way as to throw sympathy against the law. Policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions should not be portrayed as stupid, ineffective, or represented in a way to weaken respect for established authority. Vulgar and obscene language should not be used. Slang should be kept to a minimum. Divorce should not be treated humorously or represented as glamorous or alluring. And I kind of want to see which comics were doing that because <laughs> I bet that those would be awesome to reprint. Um, ridicule or attack on religious or racial group is ne never permissible. You know, another echo of the Hayes Code. But the ACMP never really took because it was unevenly enforced and there was really no mechanism for everybody to buy in. And so you saw the criticism and you saw public scrutiny of comics increase. So September 1948, Los Angeles County passes a misdemeanor uh, outlawing any adult person, firm, or corporation to sell, give, or in any fashion furnish to anybody under 18 a book, magazine, or publication in which there is prominently featured an account of crime or which depicts by use of drawings or photographs the commission of any crime. And this is directed at you know, general magazines, but comic books are really caught in this crosshair. You know, and facing a penalty of $500 fine or six months in jail, which in 1948 is you know, real money and is still real time. More than 50 cities or towns banned the sale of comic books, either through legislation or censorship committees. And by March of 1949, laws regulating comics, prohibiting sale of minors, uh, spread into 14 states. We also saw ordinances in Canada and even the United Kingdom in the same time. And so, there was a big push back against crime comics and against you know, lurid material. At the same time, these attitudes that had affected um, the production of motion pictures, we were starting to see some pushback. And the pushback was really prevalent with a uh, case involving a movie called L'Amore, which is an Italian picture that was based in two segments. And the first segment, The Miracle, by Roberto Rossellini and co-written by Frank, uh, Federico Fellini, uh, was the one that really brought this matter back up. So when the Supreme Court in 1915 had said that it was okay for the government to regulate material that might have been blasphemous in its nature, um, this foreign movie came to the States and was you know, met with protests followed over from Europe. It's about a, um, a priest's adulterous affair with somebody in his village. And so in, in Paris, it was you know, broadly picketed that women and uh, their mothers should not go see this movie that is a disgrace to everything good and decent. 
and uh, it, was, it was the subject of protest when it came to the United States. And in New York, the film's U.S. distributor um, was banned from distributing it on the, bounds, uh, on the grounds that it was sacrilegious. And so the, distri the distributor, Joseph Burston, brought suit on the constitutional grounds saying that, no, this, this should be protected and I should be allowed to distribute this work. And that led to the Supreme Court case Joseph Burston, Inc. versus Wilson in 1952, which determined that motion pictures were, in fact, artistic media protected by the First Amendment. So here's where you start to see the cultural tide turning, that you know the production code prohibited certain material that we now know and, and, and should have always been protected by the First Amendment as to adult audiences. And so there's a bit of a turnaround for motion pictures, but that unfortunately would not be the case for comics. However, by 1950, the anti-comics panic did appear to be tapering off a bit. Crime comics, as a result of the moral panic and as a result of the laws that were passed against comics that were pretty steep for people selling them, ultimately led to a lot of the crime comics being driven off of the newsstand. And you started to see publications, uh, national magazines, reconsidering this notion that perhaps comics aren't so bad after all. And it was into this climate that William Gaines, the fellow that you see on the screen here, started his most influential work at EC Comics. This was his father's company, which was called Educational Comics. They published such gripping yarns as picture tales from the Bible. And... Um, when his father died in a freak boating accident, Bill here, who was studying to be a chemistry teacher at NYU, inherited the company. And at first, he wanted nothing to do with comic books, but eventually, over time, found that he could make his own mark on it. So he renamed the company Entertaining Comics, and in collaboration with some of the greatest creators of the era, such as Al Feldstein, Harvey Kurtzman, Wallace Wood, Graham Engels, and many other, created some materials that are still considered to be amongst the high watermarks of comics. And he also created a sales sensation in the popularization of the horror comic. And so while crime had diminished in saleability, Gaines's horror formula and his science fiction materials and fantasy materials were speaking to the same audiences that were reading people like Ray Bradbury, that were listening to early science fiction uh, radio drama, and, uh, you know, all importantly, too, that group of young people that had come back from the war that were reading these comics on the PXs and on the bases and still had a taste for this kind of material that, you know, in these particular cases were illustrated quite well. And so Gaines, you know, had created this sensation and, of course, you know, hosts of imitators came about. Now, Wortham, in this period, had taken his sabbatical to work on what would ultimately be his legacy piece, and he came out in late 1953 with an article in the Ladies' Home Journal, which was the widely read publication in the States uh, at the time, and it was targeted at the women who were making the purchasing decisions for what the family you know, would allow the kids to read, created this article called What Parents Don't Know About Comic Books. And here you see him introducing the notions that comic books are a leading cause of juvenile delinquency by creating these imitative um, templates that kids can follow for sadism, for crime, for murder, for rape, for sexual perversion. He had a very strong view that the Batman and Robin comics were not the wholesome kid sidekick and, and hero thing for young kids to look up to, but were in fact some kind of a homosexual template that was going to create homosexual deviancy amongst young children. He had this view that Superman was this kind of fascist that was going to turn children against their parents and was going to create this sense that, well, why should you respect daddy when there's Superman who can do anything? And so this article made a very broad case that Wortham, working in the Lafarge Clinic and with his science behind him, is proving that the normal child is the one that is going to be most harmed. And so a few months later came the publication of The Seduction of the Innocent, which is the book that we would know him for now, and which later on would be proven to actually have been based upon falsified information. Uh, but even before that, this is a book where he is writing without a control group. He is writing with the, at this clinic 
for at-risk kids and seeing that you know, these kids are in bad situations, they all read comics, therefore it's the comics' fault. We now know, thanks to educator uh, Carol Tilley, who did the research uh, of Wortham's own papers, that he actually altered the statements of the young people or combined statements to prove his point of view. But at the time, taking you know, this man that you see on the screen at his word is this kindly scientist that is only interested in the, ben in the, in the benefit of young people, um, and this is a great picture from the Lafarge Clinic, that you know, we should listen to him because you know, he has the best interests of our kids at heart. And so all of these things bubbled up into this strong bubble of moral panic where you know, our kids are at risk, you know, this, this book says so, and this scientist has some really compelling arguments. Crime really is going up amongst young people, and the government decided that this is something that we should be looking at and something we should be examining. And so in April of 1954, in fact, it's going to be 60 years ago next week, um, the Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency convened in New York. And so here you saw under a nationally televised microscope the comics were placed on trial. Wortham was the first to come to the stand uh, in the afternoon session, and he was given very careful treatment as he outlined his view that comics were detrimental to youth. And although his science has now been debunked, it carried a very heavy weight at the time. Um, William Gaines, the publisher of EC Comics, also was there that day, and he volunteered to take the stand in what would ultimately be perhaps the greatest blunder in the history of comic books. Um, Gaines, to put it into context, was about 34 years of age at the time. Um, he had finally found his voice in this enterprise he didn't want from his father, but that he found was his own. He was finding monetary success. He was finding cultural success. You know, these things were selling. And um, all of a sudden, there's this, you know, th this attack on his industry and his attack on this field that he, you know, has, has really taken to. And so he resents the notion that the government is actually looking into this field and, and taking these ridiculous arguments in his mind uh, to heart. And so he published this uh, satirical ad in um, the... 19, uh, Tales from the Crypt number 43 from 1954 uh, called Are You a Red Dupe? And this is in the height of McCarthyism and the Red Scare in the United States. And here in this ad he says the group most anxious to destroy comics are the communists. And not just publishing this in his magazine but making sure that it was sent to every single one of the senators on the subcommittee. Are you a red dupe? The group that most wants to destroy comics are communists. And uh, so maybe you guys are communists, too. They were not amused by his satirical joke. Now, worse than this, um, you know, Gaines, again, you know, 34, righteously indignant, struggling with his weight, is taking uh, what was at the time called diet pills, which we would now refer to as speed. And um, he had spent, you know, a week crafting his testimony that he was voluntarily going to. Nobody called Bill Gaines to the witness stand. And he was really defiant. And when you read the accounts, one might say kind of scary with just how upset he was by this and the fact that you know, he wasn't eating and he was you know, taking these pills and really had a point of view about what he was going to say here. And so Gaines goes up to the stand after lunch, long after his scheduled time, long after his prescription diet pills were starting to wear off. And so he is a sweaty mess on the stage, and he opens his statements with the prepared statement that, Your Honors, no, no good, no kid has ever been ruined by a book. Do we forget that our children are, are citizens and entitled to say and do and read what they would like? Which, okay, following you so far, that's pretty good. Um, but, you know, when you look at these arguments, he, he said, such as those brought by Dr. Wortham, for him to appreciate the thrill of a good twist ending of a horror comic is, is like expecting a frigid old maid to understand the, sublim the, the sublime nature of love. And the personal attacks on the guy that they're treating with kid gloves probably isn't very good. Um, but then, as he's testifying and not so quick on his feet, he's backed into this terrible corner. 
Chief Counsel Herbert Beezer says, let me get the limits as far as what you put into your magazine. Is the sole test of what you put in your magazine, whether it sells? Is there any limit you can think that you would not put in the magazine because you thought a child should not see or read about it? Bill Gaines says, I wouldn't say there's any limit for the reason you outlined. My only limits are the bounds of good taste, what I consider to be good taste. Then you cannot think of a way, then you think a child cannot in any way, shape, or manner be hurt by anything that child reads or sees? I don't believe so, Gaines says. There would be no limit to what you would actually put in your magazines. Only within the bounds of good taste, says Gaines. You, good taste in your own saleability, yes. Senator Estes Kefauver produces the cover you see on the screen of uh, Crime Suspense Stories number 22. Here is your May 22nd issue, Kefauver says. This seems to be a man with a bloody axe holding a woman's head up which has been severed from her body. Do you think that is in good taste? Yes, sir, I do, for the cover of a horror comic. A cover in bad taste, for example, might be defined as holding the head a little higher so that the neck could be seen dripping blood from it and moving the body over a little further so the neck of the body could be seen to be bloody. You have blood coming out of her mouth. A little. <laughs> it's a complicated situation. I mean, at the same time that Gaines was saying this, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon were sitting in Simon's apartment in New York, and Kirby's sitting there on the couch with his heads, with his uh, fists on his, on his temper saying, stupid, stupid, stupid. And everybody sees the walls crumbling around them because the, the journalists hear, yes, sir, I do. That's some good taste for a cover of a horror comic. I'm done. I'm going to go file my story and go to the bar. My work here for the day is, is finished. Um, but, you know, again, Gaines, when you read him, doesn't come across that poorly, but he was clearly out of his league. And in attempting to be idealistic and stand up, for himself and his artists and his field, he wound up making the matter far, far worse than it may have been otherwise. And so the next day, newspapers across the country say, horror in good taste, says Crime Comics Publisher. And this pushed a sense in the popular culture that the moral panic got worse and that publishers were being basically told, well, you got to clean yourself up or the government's going to clean you up. And so by October of that year, six months later, the Comic Magazine Association of America was born, and the majority of publishers seen the writing on the wall that we are going to have to do something in response to this moral panic or we're going to see our livelihood completely go away, created this, uh, th this code that prevented a third-party government body, like the Hayes Code, from censoring and regulating comics content, but this self-inflicted code overnight thoroughly sanitized the content of comics, and you saw vast amounts of material be wiped out. And if you read David Hayes' book, there's an appendix that shows something like 20 pages of dense columns of artists that never worked again as a result of the moral panic that led to the Comics Code. And so the code is passed in 1954. It includes passages such as, crime shall never be presented in a way as to create sympathy for the criminal, to promote distrust of the forces of law and justice, or inspire others with the desire to imitate criminals. If crime is depicted, it shall be as a sordid and unpleasant activity. Policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions shall never be presented in a way as to create disrespect for established authority. Criminals shall not be presented so as to be rendered glamorous or occupy a position which creates a desire for emulation. In every instance, good shall triumph over evil. Scenes of excessive violence shall be prohibited. Here's the up yours Bill Gaines rule. No comic shall use the word horror or terror in its title. Scenes dealing with or instruments associated with the walking dead, torture, vampires and vampirism, ghouls, cannibalism and werewolfism are prohibited and so forth. You can read the entire code on cbldf.org, but the result is that you saw comics from being able to speak to a wide range of readers, including younger adults, went to be completely sanitized and only speak to either the youngest or the most dim-witted of readers. EC initially refused to be reviewed by the CMAA, but eventually gave in. And when they did give in, it didn't last, because Charles Murphy, who was the person that was brought out to be the comic czar and enforce the code by the industry, 
had it in for games. And the one that was the final breaking point for games was the publication of the story Judgment Day from Incredible Science Fiction number 33. And here you see the very final panel of the story. Previously, the character had been an astronaut and he was wearing his helmet. And in the last, uh, last panel, it's revealed that he's an African-American man. Editor Al Feldstein relates, so Murphy said, uh, it can't be a black person. I said, for God's sake, Judge Murphy, that's the whole point of the goddamn story. So he said, no, he can't be a black. So Bill Gaines called him up later and raised the roof. And he said, well, I'm going I'm to go out to everybody and say that you guys are a bunch of racists. And how, how would you like that press release? And Murphy finally said, all right, well, I'll tell you what. You, you just got to take the perspiration off. And Bill Gaines looks at his phone, and it's like, you got to be kidding me. And that's it. He's out of the comic book business entirely. The last thing that he did <laughs> was what went on to be the iconic Mad Magazine, which was a comic book. And then he decided, to hell with it. I'm going to get out of the comics business. I'm going to get out of dealing with tropes like Murphy and do my own thing. And so Mad was this subversive the subversive beacon out on the newsstands uh, that became a very influential force in youth culture and made Bill Gaines the iconic, happy-bearded, satirical fellow that we now think of today. But those were, those were his roots. It was a magazine. He went from being a color comic book. He went from being, that's right. He went from being a color comic book to a uh, black and white magazine and therefore not subject to the rules of the code. And we'll see that that was used for comics uh, elsewhere. Uh, but the, the comics of the 50s were primarily targeted at a juvenile audience and were not very good. And it took more than a decade for comics to start to get back to addressing older audiences. Um, the underground comics famously reclaimed the mantle of the EC comics and were inspired by MAD um, to take comics into a more satirical, edgy direction directed at older audiences. And they had a short um, duration of about five years before they were ensnared in a variety of obscenity prosecutions, which is a story for another day. Um, that you can read about on cbldf.org. But they did influence the mainstream that, hey, if these guys over here, these you know, hippies smoking weird cigarettes, can say anything in their titles, then maybe we can say more in ours. And so you saw mainstream publishers also starting to clash with censorship as the creators attempted to tell stories that they felt were more relevant to them. The most notable crumbling at the edge was the famous Spider-Man drug issue, Amazing Spider-Man number 96. In 1971, at the request of the government, Stanley wrote a Spider-Man arc that depicted drug use, which was a violation of the code. And the code administrator was gone the weekend they had to go to press, and they decided, you know what, we're not going to wait, we're just going to go out with this anyway. And so the book went out without the code seal, sales weren't impeded, and it led to the code to be revised to allow drug use as long as it's depicted as a vicious habit. This led to the 1971 revisions on the, horror, uh, on, on the comics code. The restriction on horror terror was removed. Um, passion or romantic interest uh, shall never be treated as a way to stimulate the lower and baser emotions was removed. Um, scenes dealing with or instruments associated with the walking dead torture uh, should not be used. Vampires, ghouls, and werewolves shall be permitted to be used when handled in the classic traditions Frankenstein, Dracula, Poe, Conan Doyle and others. And so you saw that the code started to go, well, we can speak to teens again. We can, we can speak about the stuff that they're reading anyway. Uh, you also saw updates on how drugs and narcotics could be depicted as a vicious habit. And this led to the famous um, era of the relevant comics, which is probably most emblematic in the famous Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams Green Lantern Green Arrow run, where you saw how Speedy um, received his name. Uh, this, this, this trend of socially relevant comics was hugely influential in the 1970s. Now, you also saw the Mad Magazine model that the gentleman in the audience had talked about starting to influence what else comics can do. And so you saw black and white magazines start to employ more of the golden age creators and, and issue a bit more sophisticated illustration and a bit more older audience uh, style stories of suspense and horror and crime that really fit what was happening in cinema at the time as well. 
Um, you saw the newsstand start to get a little bit sexier than it was previously. So you saw the Warren publications bringing out Vampirella, or later on you would see the uh, import of heavy metal uh, magazine from from the European creators, and that led to Marvel to ex explore this format as well with Epic Illustrated. These were all kind of the prototypes of the comics that we now enjoy today, but it, they were still having to work outside of the strictures of the comic book format, and they, they were working through that magazine loophole. Uh, it was really not until the development of the comic book convention and store environment that comics could truly be made in the comics format by and for fans. And this is largely the result of Phil Suling, who was a full-time English teacher that did the New York uh, Suling comic book conventions on the weekends and who was in need of a line of work after the police created a bogus sting saying that he was selling underground comics to minors and he was arrested and he was put on desk at his school job and wasn't allowed to go back in the classroom. Now, he needed a source of income. He realized that, you know, at these conventions, people are coming in, they're buying the comics. I bet if I could get the publishers to sell them to me non-returnably um, at a deeper discount that people would buy them. And that led to the environment we now understand as the comic book store, where comics were sold in non-returnably, and that allowed publishers to take better risks. That allowed smaller publishers to come in and go, okay, I know exactly how many I'm going to sell before I print it. And the retailers went, we're going to get a better discount so we can take a little bit of a risk on what's out there. So you saw new publishers start to come in and you know, assert their independence by doing a variety of content that could have never flown under the code and without needing to undergo the expense of circulating on newsstands, which were still largely run by organized crime and still you know, a very risky proposition that you would make your money back. You saw self-publishing like ElfQuest and Cerebus start to expand what comics could do. You saw comics start to address more contemporary concerns like Los Bros Hernandez's Love and Rockets, which was published by Fantagraphics in the early 80s. You saw publishers like Kitchen Sink and Last Gas pick up the mantle of underground comics, creating adult-oriented works for thoughtful adults like Gay Comics or Omaha the Cat Dancer. You saw that the mainstream was then influences. You know, we don't need no stinking badges. Marvel did the Marvel graphic novel, which was sold directly into comic book stores as a way to make more sophisticated stories with the heroes for this new audience. You saw DC now be able to create books like Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, which was the first to go out without the code seal and speak to audiences that were coming into the stores. This is the prototype of the show of the environment that we are enjoying here at WonderCon. And it all kind of came to a head with the 1986 boom um, that led to the simultaneous publication of Batman, The Dark Knight Returns, Mouse, and Watchmen, which were high watermarks where popular magazines are going, hey, maybe comics really do have something to say. It led to the black and white boom where books like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Cerebus and Zot and all of their imitators started to get broad purchase. And so all of this economic and creative vitality was happening inside of the comic book store environment outside of the confines of the comic book code. And what that meant is that the code was becoming increasingly less relevant as comics were created in an environment by and for fans. This ultimately led to the 1989 revisions of the code, which you can read at cbldf.org. And this one's really interesting because instead of being a proscriptive uh, set of these are the things you can't do, it's much more lawyerly and open-ended. You know, if it is dramatically appropriate for one character to demean another because of his or her sex, ethnicity, religion, sexual preference, orientation, etc., um, then these conditions um, will ultimately be resp the responsibility of the character making those assertions. Heroes should be role models and reflect prevailing social attitudes. Healthy, wholesome lifestyles will be presented as desirable. Costumes in a comic book will be considered to be acceptable if they fall within the scope of contemporary styles and fashions. So, you know, here you see a much more open-ended code that is in response to the notion that the newsstand is dwindling, the direct market is growing, and we're able to do all of this stuff without the code anyway. And so we need to revise the code in a way that is more consistent with these mores. 
But it continued to erode, and throughout the 2000s, particularly with the boom that was created by Image Comics going out independently as a new company that was economically viable outside of Marvel and DC without the code, it was less and less important for the rest of the industry to participate. And so famously, uh, Bill Jemis, who was Marvel's very flamboyant and incendiary uh, head of publishing at the time, uh, said, forget it, we're not going to do the code. And at the time said, there's something wrong with the current system where if the book does not bear the stamp that there's something wrong with it. He said, quote, that's bullshit. And so Marvel pulled out from the code, and that led to more pressure to see it as irrelevant. And so there was a slow death that happened, that after Marvel dropped the seal, other companies such as Bongo quietly dropped it as well. Finally, in 2011, DC and Archie, the last holdouts of the code, abandoned the use of the seal. And at that point in the postmortem news conference, it had been revealed that Archie had actually been using the seal without submitting it for review. <laughs> in fact, many publishers weren't even sure who was actually running the CCA by 2009. At the end of the Comics Code, I received a phone call from a lawyer at DC Comics who said, so it's not public knowledge yet, but in a couple of months, the Comics Code is going to go away. And for the last almost 60 years, this has been a symbol of censorship. And um, we think that the seal still has some value, and that as long as the seal still has some value, it should be used to fight censorship from here on out. And so we would like to donate the intellectual property rights to the seal to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. And so <laughs> since that day, we have actually been using the code seal to raise awareness of the history that has occurred and to raise funds to fight censorship in the future because, as we learned this week, censorship is still alive and well. Jeff Smith's Bone was the 10th most banned comic in libraries in 2013. So the moral panic that goes back to the movies, goes back to the, to the, to the incidents that led to the Comics Code is still happening, but now there is no longer a body that is confining the expression of comics. And so in the final analysis, Bill Gaines was right. Comic books are not going to harm our kids who are entitled to make their own decisions about what they see or read. And the industry no longer is censoring itself behind a code that says that we are somehow limited because we are comics. But we are still facing censorship and we still need to stand up against it. And that's what the fund is doing today. Thanks so much for your attention this afternoon. Comic Book Legal Defense Fund is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we rely on donations from listeners like yourself and other supporters. This podcast was made possible in part with a donation from the Gaiman Foundation. If you would like to donate and help support our ongoing legal work and education programming, you can visit our website, cbldf.org, and click the Donate button. The Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast is edited and produced by myself, Alex Cox. And this month's episode was hosted and presented by our executive director, Charles Brownstein. Thank you very much, and I hope you enjoyed it.